1: and most importantly, the survivor understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery.
0: Before we dive into today's episode of Noggins and Neurons, here's a quick recap of our previous episode, Sensation Recovery. Pete and I talked about the role of sensation in movement, body awareness and safety, the impact of sensation on quality of life, repetitive practice and sensation recovery, how to assess it and treat it. We also talked a little bit about documentation. Then we covered active and passive interventions along with a sensation recovery home program.
1: But there may be a mental block there a sort mm-hmm. of phobia a fear that they'd never be able to get it back and you do see that in survivors you go mr smith you know we can fool around with balance training and we can fool around with grasp and release training you have trouble opening and closing your hands so that would be good we could work on that we can work on balance but you were a scratch golfer back in the day so if we put a putter in your hand and we get you to start to golf, you'll be working on balance and you'll be working on grasp and release and we don't even have to worry about it because the whole system will drive itself. And then Mr. Smith says, I never want to go back to playing golf because I was such a good golfer. And now you're going to come in with this, what? You're going to have like a putter return thing or something and stick an old putter in my hand. I don't want to do that. But if you can get him to turn that corner, all of a sudden the system starts to run itself. Yep. Okay. Okay. Are you readyish? ish
0: I guess. My problem is there's a glare on this screen. On your face. <laughs> You're better off. Okay. Hey, Deb Battitzella. How are you? Hey, Pete. I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Awesome. Um, anything new? Yeah, we had a little scare this week. Get right out. What happened? Well, my cute little grandson, who was just here last weekend celebrating his fourth birthday, and all of that went really well. And then they went home, and they're the ones that have that zipline situation. Oh, that one that you went on. Yeah, the one that I safely went on. Well, Easton was so excited at his birthday party that he decided to jump off of the platform. And he... Ended up a little bit t- of time at the hospital. He's okay. Oh. He has a compression fracture in his lumbar spine. Oh. I know scared. I probably know a little too much.
1: About compression fractures or about running or
0: About the spine. My very first spinal cord patient that I worked with as a fieldwork student was a 15-year-old girl who fell out of her treehouse. She had a T10 injury. And so you know, it kind of freaked grandma out a little bit.
1: Yeah. Uh Paralysis is uh scary.
0: It is scary.
1: When you said it, the first thing I thought was, he'll heal well. Where was it? It was low on the back, right?
0: Yeah, in the lumbar region. They mistakenly documented C4. So I think maybe it was L4. <gasps> I know. That's a mistake. That's a bad mistake. That That's is a, a bad mistake. mistake. I told my daughter today. You need to call them up and have them correct that. Yeah, yeah, that would. Yeah, be good. yeah, and we had the conversation about additional safety measures, so those will be put in place, implemented soon. soon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. All right, grandma. And, yeah. Is that what so they then, call you?
1: Do they call you grandma?
0: They call me Grandma Deb. <laughs> grandma Deb, that's
1: that has a ring to it.
0: Yeah, and another fun one. My granddaughter, the oldest one, she calls me the young grandma.
1: Oh, that's the side you want to be on. It is. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah. What is, the, is the old grandma like 61? She's just a little older than me, but she might act a little older than me. I see. I mm-hmm. see. Yes, yeah. you are young yeah.
1: acting. So that, yeah. that's helpful.
0: It is. So how about you? I'm immature. I'm
1: young <laughs> acting because I'm immature. That's all it takes. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Um, so what are we talking about today?
0: Today, we are going to talk about what does work. So we recently did a couple of episodes on what doesn't work. And we learned
1: that sucked because it turned out a lot of stuff didn't work, and it just seemed like everything didn't work. So that, so this is the flip side of that. That's that's good news.
0: Yeah. Well, what really sucked about that
1: for you? What sucked was that so many things are equivocal at best. What Mm -hmm. sucks is that when you look at meta-analyses, often it's just a checkoff list of things that don't work. What sucks is that these meta-analyses tend not to be committal about what does work. But they seem more committal about what doesn't work. And maybe that's as, as it should be. You want to do no harm. You don't want to waste people's time and money. But yeah, it just felt kind of like negative. So now we get to do the positive part. What, what do we think works? Cool. Yeah. But we have to be just as cautious because just like what doesn't work, I wasn't particularly comfortable in saying X doesn't work because you never know. It may not work for 100 people, but then it works for that 101st person. And we talked about how this is why clinicians make so much money is they're able to figure out what works at what point in time in combination with other things for that person during whatever phase they're in of recovery. And so it gets a little complicated, Um, but I'm not particularly okay with saying X doesn't work. I'm also equally not as happy with saying X does work all the time. And we've been through that in rehab a lot where, you know, there's people who say X works and I'm all behind X and I'm an X related therapist. And that can be a mistake as well. So it takes ballast or balance on both sides. Things are going to work and not work and other things work and not work. And, you know, nothing in medicine works for everybody all the time.
0: Yeah. The human body, everybody's is different and everybody's brain is different. Like you've spoken about so many times in this podcast.
1: There's a lot of variables, right? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I'd like to
1: start out with a story if I could, unless you have something else pressing you want to talk
0: about. (laughs) I was just going to say, so do you have a story for I do have a
1: story. Yeah. I want to talk about a super survivor. And remember, a super survivor is somebody who is so compelled to get back to some aspect of their life that they drive cortical change. They drive neuroplasticity. They get better. They get more functional because they have to. They have no choice. It's a matter of survival for some reason for them. And we had Kathy Spencer on here who was a super survivor. This person that once she was discharged from therapy, she realized it wasn't the beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning. And she got back up on her horse and she made a lot of progress after she was discharged after she plateaued. And when a stroke survivor or a person with brain injury really wants to get back to that thing or a group of things, but usually that thing, it's easier for the therapist because they don't have to motivate them. It's easier for the survivor because they have this cherished task which drives recovery, it's easier for the survivor's brain because when it comes to driving plastic changes, the power is in the focus and we focus on what we care about. Uh, neuroscientists, great neuroscientists, deserves a card. Michael Mersonich puts it this way, if it's not important to you, it's not important to your brain. But the flip side of that is if it is important to you, your brain will work over time to try to get that thing back. So what does all this have to do with what works? Ultimately, it's about how motivated the person is. It would be great if somehow we could motivate them in some way, but it's really about how motivated they are. It's all about a lot of sweaty, ugly, hard work. It's about forcing the brain into a new and uncomfortable but productive area. Humans have been doing this at least for 70,000 years. That's about the time we started making tools. So that's probably when we started getting really good at doing a lot of repetitive practice. There's no magic bullet because the brain is slow. It has to learn. So we can talk about a lot of fancy technologies, but I'm hoping that what we get out of this is that there are some technologies that really help. But a lot of this stuff is the old school stuff. We're going to talk about the effect of a chair or an oven mitt or a mirror or a strap or a belt. As well, of course, as good clinicians.
0: So overall we need to be a good team, all of us working with the survivor.
1: Yeah. And sometimes I think we forget that the survivor is the head of that team.
0: Because yeah.
1: they, they got the brain. It's their brain.
0: It is their brain. Yeah. It's a it can be an interesting dynamic sometimes.
1: It's true. And mm-hmm. you know, I can talk about this stuff, but a lot of people are unmotivated. They're happy where they are, or they just don't want to put in the effort. There was some studies that suggested that people who had ever been a good athlete or a good musician recover better than those of us who weren't. And some people think it's because that part of the motor cortex is hypertrophied in them. And so they could afford to lose more of the motor cortex. The other idea, though, is that they know how to practice. And they're not afraid. They understand that if you put in the work, sometimes results happen and sometimes they don't happen, but you're willing to, uh, to take that bet.
0: Results never happen if you don't do the work.
1: Those are words to
0: live by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I we're done here then.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just work your ass off kids. You know, it's funny. Quinn Bond, who is an exercise physiologist that worked with us at Kessler, brilliant guy. He came up with this idea for a study. What would be the effects of a swift kick in the ass? Now we, we figured immediately that was unethical, but he was the one who kind of laid bare this kinship between athletes and survivors that maybe it is about ass kicking not externally, and maybe therapists can help with that a little bit, but it's really about an internal ass kicking. Can you get yourself up and go after it after you've plateaued and everybody's telling you that it's nothing's going to work? Can you still get up and, and keep working at it? And I know a ton of survivors who do that.
0: Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with personality. If you're the type of person who is driven by somebody telling you that you can't do something, that could work well.
1: Ooh, that's a good one.
0: Mm-hmm. If you're the type of person that's easily beaten down, well, you're going to have to find something within you, I think.
1: Absolutely. So where do we want to start with all the good news that we have to talk about today?
0: I don't know. Are you going to go through the EBRSR?
1: I have the EBRSR, but there's also some other meta-analyses that I, I'd like to talk about. Um, but the EBRSR is a one-stop shop for a lot of this stuff, and it's updated all the time. So it's a recent one-stop shop. So I do have stuff from that. I want to go after the upper extremity first, if that's
0: okay. Yeah. One of the first things that I looked at today is action observation. And that's where you watch videos of a person making a movement that you want to make. And then you watch that for some time, and then you try to make those movements. And I know that we talked about that in a previous episode, but I think it's worth talking about again. So I found a study that uh, talked about that for the upper limb, and they actually did three different groups. So they had action observation, they had an active control group where they just received traditional therapy, and then they had people using a mirror box. And all three groups showed improvements, but the most improvement occurred in the action observation and the control group receiving traditional therapy. But the mirror box group, they used an actual box for the mirror therapy. So they think that that group actually started with higher function and they might have limited the, their ability to move because they used a box instead of a larger mirror where they could just move behind the mirror. Did
1: the mirror box group not do as well? And you, th- you think that may have been because they were constrained in a way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they started at a higher baseline than the other two groups. So they thought maybe that might have something to do with it, but actually using a box in the study showed a picture, a color picture of the box. And um, yeah, so they attributed a possibility that, that maybe it's because they limited their movement ability in, in that box. And they talk about proprioception being affected too. It said probably the conflicts between vision and proprioception caused by not exactly the same movements between the mirror reflection of the non-affected hand and the actual affected hand during the mirror therapy might've led to them experiencing some unpleasant sensations, which could have also reduced the treatment effect. So I know sometimes when people do mirror therapy, it does make that affected limb feel different from what they're used to it feeling like since they've had their stroke. So I thought that was interesting. So the action observation had an
1: advantage. The advantage was what they were looking at was really good movement, mm-hmm. whereas the mirror therapy has this disconnect between stronger side and the weaker side. It feels different. They're not looking at it. In their mind's eye, it would look different as well because it feels different. Yeah. So maybe that's why action observation did a little bit better.
0: It could be. This study also talked about action observation is a little bit more effort on the end of the clinician to get ready because you have to make the videos that you want the people to watch. And then as they improve, you have to change the videos. So you have to modify along with them.
1: That's really interesting. Hmm. Hey, maybe we can market that. We I'm pretty library, sure we can. Yeah, a library of videos that cover every possible function that anybody would ever possibly want to do. That's what, uh, probably about 15 different sports and it's upper body dressing and it's a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, we could never end with mm-hmm. that. And it's interesting because I'm going to talk about mental practice today as one of the things that may work pretty well. And we used recordings to take them through the mental practice and I'll tell people where to get them for free online today but if you're imagining something you're imagining it the way you did it prior to your brain injury so you don't have this issue like you're talking about where they're getting better over time they're just imagining the best the, mm-hmm. when they're back when they were 20 or whatever so yeah. it's it's a little bit different but I can see how you would always have to make the movement a little bit better than where they are right now if it was action observation
0: mhm I've never used action observation clinically. And kind of wish I was in the clinic now because this is something that I would use because it works. The other thing about what
1: you said that's interesting is if you're going to make a video, you get these really consistent videos because it's the same video over and over again, where I had always thought about you know somebody who wanted to go back to playing tennis would watch Roger Federer or something, watch a really good tennis player play tennis. And that would activate through mirror neurons, the same cortical real estate as if they were doing it. So that's a little bit different than providing a series of videos, but I think both can be helpful.
0: I was just going to say, maybe that would be a little bit more interesting for someone. If you can make like a recording loop so that they can watch those movements- repeatedly, and then try to make those movements afterwards.
1: Yeah. And if it was tennis, it could be a serve, right? And then every time they'd serve, you'd get this loop of, it would be like, it would be kind of a nightmare, but that would be fun too. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for letting me do that.
0: You're welcome. I'm
1: the disruptive guy in the back of the class throwing spitballs at this point. That's excellent. Yeah. So action observation mirror neurons, empathizing with the person on the screen so much that your brain lights up with them. Wow. It's like we're all interconnected. You know what it's like? It's like the internet of minds. The matrix. The matrix. I was thinking of a show that I've been watching lately that's on Netflix. It's called Manifest, where these Mm. people have these things happening to their brains and they're all interconnected and they all feel the same thing.
0: Ooh, that sounds (laughs) cool. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. Well, so I I wonder, I'm sorry, I have to deviate from your your Netflix show. <laughs> I wonder if if they use action observation enough and it's an activity that they value, it's something that interests them. I wonder if over time the mental practice piece would be easy to integrate because you know how you just keep reflecting back on that, but kind of like you have to think about it also in like the forward future piece where you're actually doing it, but putting yourself in that space.
1: Are you suggesting that we should take two great tastes that taste great together? Maybe action observation followed by bouts of mental practice.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. They're both kind of related you are using your maybe your mirror neurons or maybe not you're using the motor schema in both cases i don't know they're they're very related in a lot of ways and they may be great adjuncts that's the other thing about what works a lot of times two great tastes that taste great together right we know it's peanut butter and chocolate but you could use mirror but you can
0: use caramel and chocolate too
1: <laughs> you know, this is kind of early in this uh, podcast to get silly. Mm-hmm. We usually don't. We usually save that for the last fifteen minutes. But yeah, Carmel's great too. Is yeah. S'mores, whatever works. But mm-hmm. yeah, this idea of taking two things that are singularly efficacious and putting them together and amplifying both, or in some ways, some way allowing for one to be the yang to the other's yin. So, think about that, whether you're a clinician or a person with brain injury, you can always dovetail these two things together, or three things, e mirror therapy, action observation, and mental practice. Put them all together, and it's like a s'more, but it has uh, caramel, I guess.
0: Yeah, why not? Absolutely. I, it could be helpful to the person who's had the brain injury, too, because you know, do you ever get in a place where you, you want to imagine something, but you just can't? Probably that hasn't happened to you, but that does happen to me. Like what,
1: like something you've never done before or?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Like that zip line thing. So let's use that for an example. So I watched the grandkids go on the zip line. I've never done it. I can't imagine. The only thing I can imagine that it feels like is uh, an amusement park ride where I'm actually safe in a box. Well, kind of safe, you know, but I've never done it. So if I didn't do it, then I would never know what it felt like. But if I watched it enough and thought about it enough and got myself in that mental space, which is really what I did to motivate myself to have the courage to do it. Just sometimes you want you want to do something, but you've never done it. So how do you imagine what you haven't done? Or how do you reimagine something when you're just in this state where your body's not feeling itself, if you're having a hard time getting yourself into that? mindset.
1: That second scenario makes more sense because you wouldn't have them imagining things that they didn't know very well Yeah, in mental practice. You probably wouldn't have them doing action observation of riding a horse when they've never rode a horse before. But that second one, that one I can see where maybe they're chronic mm-hmm. and they've lived inside this hemiparetic body or this body that isn't moving well if they have had acquired brain injury And now they can't imagine going back to that thing. I wonder if that's possible, but then I would go back to these motor engrams or motor schemas that exist in the brain that are the memories of the movement. And they are in there, but there may be a mental block there, a sort Mm -hmm. of phobia, a fear that they'd never be able to get it back. And you do see that in survivors. You go, Mr. Smith, you know, we can fool around with balance training and we can fool around with grasp and release training. You have trouble opening and closing your hand, So that would be good. We can work on that. We can work on balance, but you were a scratch golfer back in the day. So if we put a putter in your hand and we get you to start to golf, you'll be working on balance and you'll be working on grasp and release. And we don't even have to worry about it because the whole system will drive itself. And then we can incorporate mental practice. And then Mr. Smith says, I never want to go back to playing golf because I was such a good golfer. And now you're going to come in with this what? You're going to have like a putter return thing or something and stick an old putter in my hand. I don't want to do that. But if you can get him to turn that corner, all of a sudden the system starts to run itself.
0: We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have. Although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and... Whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that?
1: That's true. Um, And we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address?
0: I do. It's at Neurons.
1: At Neurons. That's pretty simple. It is. And it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. and Yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the...
0: The Brain Injury Association of America?
1: That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment.
0: It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it.
1: Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury, and we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons.
0: Yeah, and we have goals for the future of this podcast, and one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more, and the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. Mm, That's true.
1: Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Because what I'm going to do, initially at least, is Lean on the bullet points from the evidence-based review of stroke rehabilitation, which we've talked a lot. We will put it in the show notes, and it's going to be one-liners, and then I'm going to try to explain how the one-liner may make sense to a, a clinician or to a survivor or to a caregiver or to a nurse or a student or whoever. So the EBRSR, it uses four terms to tell us whether stuff works or doesn't work, can and may work. It can work. It may work. Then there was may not and mixed and then may not mixed. We left to what doesn't work, but today we're going to talk about can and may. So let me go through a few things that it says. Task-specific training alone or in combination with other therapy approaches may benefit some aspects of upper limb function following stroke. Task-specific training. It's all the buzzword right now and therapists love it. And it means that whatever you're trying to learn it should be focused on a task that's a real-world task. If you want to learn to upper-body dress, you got to upper-body dress. If you want to learn to feed, you got to feed. If you want to learn to play pool, you got to play pool. My only twist on that would be go after stuff that they really want to do. Because if they're highly motivated, then that'll drive a lot more cortical change than if they're not. So if we take off something like pegboard, They're not professional pegboard doers, but there may be somebody who wants to use their dominant side. That's the hemi side to move pieces around a chessboard or play checkers or something. So you would play chess, you would play checkers. Sometimes it's okay to work on things like pegboards because it could mimic the component movements that are involved in feeding, for instance. And sometimes there is a good overlap for that kind of stuff, but always remind the person that the reason they're doing this is because it will help with doing that. So task specific training Focus on specific tasks if you want to get better at those tasks.
0: Makes so much sense, Pete. You
1: know, doesn't it? And we've been doing it for 70,000 years and there we need these eggheads at the, these major universities to tell us, yeah, this is the way you do it. Okay. Here's another one. And this is going to be a couple about constraint induced therapy. constraint induced movement therapy may be beneficial for upper limb rehabilitation in, in the chronic phase following stroke. Okay. So- I have a problem because I don't think a lot of these studies are real consistent with how they're defining chronic. My definition of chronic is the point at which the first plateau happens, because that's the resolution of the penumbra. We talked about this before. Brain is coming back online during the subacute phase. They often make a lot of progress without a lot of work because there's brain coming back online. It's billions and billions of neurons. It's larger than the area of infarct that's dead. And so they get this sort of relatively easy ride. And of course, when that easy ride ends, because there's no more brain coming back online, they plateau and that triggers discharge, which makes no sense to me because they should, they need work after they plateau. That's where some of the best stuff happens. So we can talk to managed care about that, but I don't think they're listening. So I'm not super sure how they're defining the chronic phase. Remember the most thing that you were talking about? Yes. It stands for, I wrote it down because I forgot. Medical orders for life-sustaining treatment. Deb, here's what I would ask. This says that it works during the chronic phase. The next bullet point from the EBRSR says modified constraint-induced movement therapy may be beneficial for upper limb rehabilitation in the chronic phase. So they both say chronic, but I'm going to ask you, keep this in mind. If I wake up and I see you as a clinician, please do some forced use. Not immediately. Give me a week. Let my brain start to come back online. You'll know it's coming back online because you'll see spontaneous recovery and then start having me do some forced juice. just a little bit, not zero to 60 the first day, but ease me into it. Can you promise me that? That's part of my most thing. Yes. I'll talk to my wife about it too. Send yeah. me up to mm-hmm. Buffalo. I need Deb. And I, obviously I'm screaming. So I'm a, let's see, I'm a left hemi. My, my speech is okay. I'm screaming. Guy, yeah, got to get to Deb. Send me up to Buffalo. Yeah. So. My point is this, don't do intensive therapies during the hyperacute phase because that would be illegal and the doctors would kick you out of the ER. Uh, and don't do it during the acute phase, broadly the first seven days. It, you want to ease into this stuff once they are, the penumbra is showing up, once there's brain coming back online, you know it's coming back online because of spontaneous recovery.
0: Yes. And because we, we've talked about this before, because you can actually cause more damage, if you do too much initially.
1: Yeah, you can make the infarct worse. Yeah,
0: we don't want to do that.
1: No, and we've seen that in animal models and in human models. So, But we do know, according to the EBRSR, constraint-induced and modified constraint-induced therapy seems to work in the chronic phase. Here's another one about constraint-induced therapy. Higher and lower intensity constraint-induced movement therapy may have similar effects on upper limb function in the chronic phase following stroke. So we're back at the chronic phase but they're saying there's not much difference between higher and lower
0: intensity of constraint induced. Well, maybe we should talk about what does higher and lower intensity look like. So are we looking at hours per day?
1: That's the way I'm interpreting it.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Hmm. And there was this long thing where Edward Taub, the guy who developed constraint induced therapy was doing it at the Taub Clinic at University of Alabama, Birmingham. And you pointed out that they're no longer doing that. They're working on other stuff but his original protocol was six hours a day, but that was just what they did in the clinic. And by the time I went to visit Birmingham to do a talk there a couple years later, they had already cut it down to three hours. Everything that I see in research says a half an hour to three hours seems to be the sweet spot. It may not make that much of a difference. The power is in the focus. It's probably not the number of hours, it's how much they're focused on it.
0: Do you think the repetitions have something to do with that too? how many repetitions per hour kind of a deal? I don't know, just maybe the number of repetitions during the time that they're actually engaging in constraint-induced therapy where the good limb is restrained.
1: Yeah, so the real analog between constraint-induced therapy and the rest of the world is the world of athletes or dancers or musicians. There's a point at which you practice when you're not getting better. You're breaking down muscle. It's You're hurting yourself and you're hurting your ability to consolidate that stuff. Much of this stuff is consolidated while you're asleep. That's where neuronal connections are made. This is another important reason to sleep well when you've had a brain injury because you've got to consolidate this stuff. So it may be that these higher dosages of constraint-induced therapy don't give them enough rest. Mm -hmm. So I would say, yeah, more is better up to a point. But this is where the clinician's got to come in because as you pointed out, everybody has a different brain. Everybody's a different age. They have different comorbidities. It's going to be a bunch of variables. Leave it up to a good clinician. And while forced use may be something that you can do at home and the clinician may encourage you to do at home, you got to go through a clinician first. So that's why they get paid the big bucks to to kind of figure out what the dosage should be. I would leave it up to them.
0: So what do you do if you, if you go somewhere where they there is no one who knows about constraint induced therapy, or they don't do constraint induced therapy.
1: You find every damn article on constraint induced therapy. You print them all out and slap it down on the OT's desk and say, "What up? <laughs> Let's do this.
0: Come on." Mm-hmm. Well, this is a legit question, and we got a question like this from someone recently, where they were they were kind of pre thinking everything to you know just know how to think about recovery in case the therapist didn't do X, Y, or Z. And uh, you know, it is some it is on some people's minds. And they don't they don't want to offend therapists. They want to be able to have that conversation with the therapist. It might so, be stepping on some toes.
1: Yeah, stepping on some toes, but I wonder obviously my idea of slapping down a bunch of studies and saying, I want to do this wouldn't be maybe the best way to broach it with a therapist that has a master's degree as you do, or, you know, they, they could get a little bent out of shape just like any clinician, but how would you suggest you're, you know, you want to do this thing. You're a caregiver. Um How would you approach, you're a teacher. How would you approach a, a clinician so that it, it isn't like mean?
0: Well, I wouldn't be mean. I would, <laughs> I would probably just say something I've heard about this. This is, you know, this is what I know about it. Is it something that you do here? And if you do, am I appropriate for it? I would probably ask. And then if not, then I think that's why it's important to have a resource list, uh, an extensive resource list for yourself as a clinician so that you can refer people to the right place. Because I know, you know, as as someone who has worked for a large system, most of my career. It it was a process for us to get a program or a protocol in place just because of the rules of the system.
1: Yeah. So this is the thing, and I'm grappling with this because I am writing another edition of my book. In two of the editions, actually all three, I had lists of places that did constraint-induced therapy. Here's the problem. When that group of OTs leaves. Or that group of PTs in the lower extremity leaves, they walk out with the constrained deuce therapy program because that was the program, was those four people that got together and figured it all out. So I'm going to ditch the list of facilities that do it. It took me a tremendous amount of time on the phone trying to, you know, it, it turns out it's three OTs up on the third floor and nobody knows they're doing it or they're doing it. They know that they're doing it in the clinic, but you know the switchboard doesn't know who does constraint induced therapy, so it was hard to find these people.
0: Yeah, and you didn't have our our outpatient on the list either. Our our facility. Uh oh, I know, right?
1: <laughs> so you guys were doing it, and I didn't call you, right?
0: No, you didn't. You yeah, didn't say, "Hey, I want." I wonder who in Buffalo is doing constraint induced therapy.
1: Hold Did you thought. hold that thought? <laughs> So one of the things I did do is I went to a lot of the hospitals that I thought should have it. Mm. And so, you know, if you go to the US News and World Report, every year they rank the best hospitals in oncology and nephrology and brain surgery and cancer, and they also do it for rehab. So I went through those, obviously, RIC, Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, Spalding, which is in uh, Massachusetts. T-I-R-R. They do,
0: I'm sorry. They do really amazing things at Spalding. I know many conferences that I've gone to. If someone from Spalding is doing a presentation, I usually go because they're pretty creative there. TIRR in Texas, where Gabby Giffords
1: went. Number four, Kessler. I remember when it was number two. University of Washington Medical Center, Mayo Clinic. That's interesting one because you don't think of Mayo for rehab, but there it is. Rusk, Craig, Shepard, you know, let's see what else. Moss Rehab, of course, in Philly, Ohio State's on that list. Um, of course they are. So there's not a, a hospital from Buffalo. And so that hmm. may that may have influenced. That. But, you know, you, this is what I'm saying is you've got to yeah. figure out a way to go through the switchboard and try to figure out if somebody there does it. But even if they don't, I think it's worthwhile to go to an OT and say, look, I'd really like to do this. It's not rocket surgery. I bet you can do it. Can we at least try this? Even if we fumble a little bit, I just don't want to hurt myself. Let's Mm -hmm. try to do this.
0: I'll tell you there is a place in Buffalo where they do it. It's the Erie County Medical Center. It's a trauma center.
1: Okay. Well, if we're going to advertise for uh, (laughs) our local area, we Mm -hmm. have a hospital here in Cincinnati that I'm pretty sure does it. We certainly Mm -hmm. helped set that up when we were there. It's called the Drake Center. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay, good. Excellent. Great. Here's our advertisements for the day. (laughs) We expect to check in the mail. Thank you very much. Okay, here's another one uh, that's sort of related to constraint-induced therapy. And in fact, it can be used with constraint-induced therapy. I did a lot of outcome measures, and we were always worried that if somebody is reaching for something, if you're doing the action research arm test where you're reaching for stuff, trying to grasp it, putting it someplace else, even the box and block where you're reaching for a, a block that they would so flex their trunk to get their arm there that they wouldn't extend the elbow to get their arm there. And we want elbow extension. So According to the EBRSR, trunk restraint with reaching training may improve some aspects of upper limb function following stroke. And I think that's because of the excursion that the arm has to do if the trunk's not doing it. And that's why I'm saying um, these low-tech things sometimes are the best ideas. Now, it says restraint. And you know as well as I do that restraints are not good in healthcare because we've had a long history back in the day of restraining people, and it's never good, and we don't take it lightly. It's a constraint. Make sure that they can take it off if they need to go to the bathroom or just they don't like it anymore. Maybe it hurts.
0: Yeah, And it's nice, too, because it can be a little bit of a reminder to the person not to move because the body will move in compensatory patterns without you being aware of it. So it's not like... It's not like somebody does it on purpose but if they get into if their body gets into that habit that pattern of of moving the trunk when they're reaching then just having having that uh, physical input to remind them oh I have to sit up against the chair can help
1: yeah it's just a reminder much mm-hmm. the same way the mitt is just the reminder i mean you could do constraint induced therapy without a mitt no doubt yeah. and you could probably keep your trunk against the chair rather than using it to propel your arm or to have your arm reach further. Mm -hmm. And maybe it would be a constraint that would be very temporary. And then you would just do it more naturally because you're kind of doing the right thing. You're forcing yourself not to use the trunk or not to use the stronger limb.
0: Yeah. And if you help help the survivor become aware of that, it can help improve body awareness as well because they have to They have to think about it consciously until it becomes unconscious. Yeah, absolutely.
1: That's what we're headed for, right? Mm -hmm. We want them to integrate this stuff in their everyday life without thinking about it. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, I got one about uh, stretching. Oh, good. Remember the Cochrane Review said that stretching does not, in any sort of long-term way, Reduce contraction formation, which is where muscles, they lose sarcomeres. They lose the, the contractile elements of muscle. They lose their stretchiness. They're no longer a rubber band. They're now a piece of cloth. They don't stretch. Not only that, but it doesn't reduce spasticity. But it turns out, according to the EBRSR, stretching programs may improve some aspects of upper limb function following stroke. And this makes sense. Maybe they're not spastic at all. I mean, I obsess about spasticity because that's kind of my gig, but maybe they're not spastic. Maybe that's not their issue. Maybe stretching generally does help. And so people should be encouraged to stretch absolutely unequivocally. They should be stretching. the other thing is that even if you're stretching for spasticity, remember there is a short-term reduction in spasticity after you stretch. The thing is, there's no long-term effect so far as we can tell. That's what the research says. The Cochrane Review was done twice in 2010, replicated in 2017 with even more studies. It doesn't do it. It makes intuitive sense that it doesn't reduce spasticity because if it did, we just put everybody on a grand stretching program and spasticity would be gone. You've, been, you've worked in healthcare. I've worked in healthcare and long-term care and skilled nursing. You put them on grand stretching programs. It doesn't help. You splint them. It doesn't help. So there are ways, if you want to go back to the episode about spasticity reduction or spasticity, our episode, you can find some ways to reduce spasticity in a real long-term way, but stretching doesn't do it. And I have to say, clinicians who go to patients and say, oh, spasticity, you should stretch a lot, to try to convince them that stretch reduces spasticity is inaccurate. If you want to say it'll impact spasticity in a short-term way, it will make you feel good. And it may very well stretch the muscles that are not spastic and they need to be stretched. There's a lot of good reasons to stretch. Just do not tell them that it's reducing spasticity or they won't get contracture if they do it. Because that, so far as we can tell, that's not true. Thank you for listening. That's the end of our public service announcement.
0: Well, could I say that um, it's more of a prevention approach, right? And so, the EBRSR says that it may produce greater improvements in performance of activities of daily living. So, you know, getting washed and dressed is it's something that most people want to do every day and if if the range of motion is maintained, then it's easier to get washed and dressed, whether you're doing it on your own or a caregiver is doing it for you or with you. It is it is nice to be able to stretch out an arm enough to wash under your arm, you know, and to maybe for the hand to, to keep that hand from clenching so tightly that nails dig into the skin. So, keeping the hand clean and maintaining skin integrity is, it's a reason to do it.
1: Okay. So, a couple things about that. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's debate this a little bit. Can we? Yes, please. Okay. So, it'll be a gentle debate. Okay. Stretching does not reduce spasticity. No. Okay. But I see your point. Let's say you're setting them up for upper body dressing and you stretch them so that temporarily they have more range of motion. And as you say, the fingers aren't cutting into themselves, all those kinds of things. Now, you know that I have this neuroplastic model of spasticity reduction, which means that you reestablish brain control over the spastic muscles and the spinal cord no longer controls the muscles. Now the brain is recontrolling it. And we've talked about this in this, this episode. It could be the ipsilateral side of the brain that's doing that. And so your idea of having them stretch a lot would be good to set them up for this neuroplastic model. My problem is that the first line of defense is always claimed to be stretching. Let's not confuse people into believing that stretching alone will reduce spasticity or reduce the formation of contractures. Okay. Thank you. That was easy. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> I don't think you disagree with me, so that was an easy sell. Yeah.
0: Okay. The thing I got- is, well, I just want to, you know, so if a contracture occurs, then you have another problem, especially if it's the hand and the hand doesn't open.
1: You sure do. That's a whole mm-hmm. different thing because now it's no longer muscle. It turns into this fibrous tissue that is not muscle. It's more like tendon. It doesn't stretch. Yeah. And then you're into tendon lengthening and mm-hmm. it's a surgery and it's it's tough. So I got one on mirror therapy that comes from the EBRSR.
0: You do? Ba-ba, ba-ba. Hear
1: ye, hear ye. I just that is like two different millennia. One was like <laughs> ancient Egypt, the conch shell, and uh the other one was like early American, hear ye, hear ye. Yeah, so this is the one that can. It's the only one in the EBRSR for the upper and lower extremity that says it can mirror therapy on its own or in combination with other interventions can improve many aspects of upper limb function following stroke.
0: So So, I always like to try to find something outside of the EBRSR. And I found a, a good article on it's called the sensory side of post-stroke rehabilitation. And they talked about mirror box illusion. And they said that it has positive effects on motor planning, spatial efficiency in movement execution, as well as multi-joint coordination, surface and temperature sensitivity, and spatial hemi-neglect, which we've talked about before. It just seems like there are so many positive Reasons to use mirror therapy, I've heard clinicians say that their's their clients or their patients they don't want to use it because it's boring, and I was really happy when Kathy Spencer brought up the point about some things are boring, and you know sometimes it is boring, like repetition, anything that's that you're repeating over and over again, it can have an element of boringness to it, but it really is how change occurs, so. Again, I think if we bring in something a little bit more interesting, maybe incorporate that uh, competition piece that you talked about, things like that, it might um, make it a little more interesting for people in a group situation anyway.
1: So was that study that you talked about, that'll be in the show notes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and was it a meta-analysis or was it a singular study?
0: It doesn't say that it's a meta-analysis They essentially went through a bunch of different interventions that incorporate sensation. And they talk a lot about the importance of sensation with movement and how we can't really separate that pretty much like what we were talking about in our episode on sensation recovery.
1: I've heard you say before that the mirror box itself isn't the best way to vector this stuff in. It's like, imagine two shoe boxes glued together. A mirror is facing the less affected limb. But the more affected limb, that is covered. So, they can't see the more affected limb. Is that the way you envision a, a mirror box?
0: Yes. And I don't even, I think mirror box is how it first started. Isn't that how? It is. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Let me just point out one other thing. This is V.S. Ramachandran, mm-hmm. but it was a student of his, Eric Altschuler, that's on all of the early research research for stroke. Remember, he was doing it for phantom limb pain. Eric Altshuler, the student, Altshuler is now uh, a physiatrist. I think he works in New York City. And so, I just want to get that name out there because he was instrumental in this as well. Although, of course, Ramachandran ran the whole thing. But yeah, they used a box. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's evolved over time now to just use a mirror. Ideally, a mirror that just has little feet on it and stands at a 90-degree a angle on the table or the floor is what you want. And you can use different sizes. So, if you have a larger mirror, the person can make larger movements behind the mirror.
1: Yeah, that's Be- true. Yeah.
0: Because ultimately, you don't, you don't want the eye to catch that limb moving because it breaks the illusion.
1: Yeah. So, something pretty big. Mm-hmm. But then, as you mentioned from the previous study, you talked about that box itself becomes this constraint, and that's not what you want out of the affected side. The great thing about mirror therapy one of the many great things is you can drive cortical change before they can move at all on that affected side. But eventually, you want them to do in phase movement, which is equal and at the same time movement, even though the hemi side isn't doing it perfectly, it at least attempts to do it. And you don't want something to constrain their movement like a box. So, yeah, we right. Should, We should email Ramachandra and say,
0: you know, we think you did it wrong. I don't think we should. I'm
1: sorry, doctor, but you got this wrong. We have some thoughts about what you did. He might say, Pete, where did you start with this mirror? I I read it in your article. That's where I started. (laughs) I have no originality at all. I'm just like stealing other people's work.
0: Pete, you feel free to use a different mirror (laughs) in your (laughs)
1: research. (laughs) You can do whatever you want. I don't care. You're a hack as far as I'm concerned. That's a pretty good Ramachandran right there. Yeah, that was really good. Thank you very much. I'm <laughs> here all day. Okay, uh, are okay. you ready for the next one? Yeah. Mental practice started by, I must say, the great Stephen J. Page. Did I ever tell you about, so Steve Page was my boss and colleague and always my friend. And uh, did I ever tell And you?
0: the guy who helped me out on That's my right. field work. Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so, um. So, did I ever tell you how uh, he introduced this to me? No. So, Kessler, probably in 2000, 2001, in there someplace. I had three bosses. The chief vascular surgeon at the VA in New Jersey. We were doing uh, a study on chronic venous insufficiency. Sue Sisto is a PT-PhD. I think she works at Stony Brook now. She was head of ACRM. What is ACRM again? <laughs> um, well. Re- oh, man, I'm doing a talk for them in like less than a month. I better know this.
0: American Congress of Rehabilitation, Rehabilitation Medicine. Medicine. There you, you go. You're welcome.
1: Yeah. That so was tough. Sue Ann Sisto was the director of that. And then Steve Page was much younger than me. The only one. I think Sue Ann's younger is younger than me as well. But but Steve was considerably younger. I think he's like 15 years younger than me. And he was- He a, is not. He's not? Don't you don't think I have the numbers right? <laughs> I don't. 10 years? Maybe, maybe 10. Maybe 10 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So- he was a postdoc. He was still trying to get his PhD. He was not yet an OT. It was sort of like, you know how we do clinicals? Well, they do postdocs. Okay. we You got the PhD and we'll call you a doctor, but can you write a study? Can you get funding? Can you make a study go? We'll give you some grant money to start this process, but that's it. So he comes into me one day and he says, uh, my swim team back in college did a lot of mental practice. I want to try it in stroke survivors. And he hadn't known that many stroke survivors at that point. I had been a clinician. I'd worked with some stroke survivors, and I knew how debilitating stroke could be. And I was like, Steve, you shouldn't do this because you're going to derail your career. You're going to do mental practice, this soft thing that you know athletes use to get just a tiny bit better, and it's going to go up against dense hemiparesis. Don't do it. it, it don't waste your time. And he said, "Oh, okay," and he left. And then he comes back two weeks later, and he says. I want to do mental practice in in people that have had a stroke. And I said, Steve, now we talked about this. (laughs) That's not (laughs) what I said. He was my boss, so I was polite. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, you know, it's not really a good idea. And he said, we got funding. And I said, let's do it. And that was the seminal research. And I got to give Steve a lot of credit for sticking to his guns and thinking there was some there there because it turns out it's reached the level of meta-analysis and it appears as if there's there there. It's something that doesn't burn through a lot of clinical time. You don't have to have a therapist there. We used recordings to take them through the process. So they would imagine moving the way they did prior to their stroke. But there was a recording and the recordings were so old that I remember when they were in, on cassette. That's how oh, some wow. of the old these, some of these studies are. How long were those
0: recordings?
1: They were about 20 minutes. Okay. We also had a control group that listened to stats about stroke, very boring stuff. Ooh. Um, we wanted to make sure- Did they take a nap? Yeah. Well, that was, that was actually a problem. Here's what we figured out we would do after, because the mental practice group would fall asleep as well, and as mm. well as the, the people just listening to the sham recording. So we came up with this idea. We would tell them, we're going to quiz you about some of the things that are said on the tape, so make sure you stay awake. Yeah. So don't have them lie down. That's the thing about mental practice. Anyway, what the EBRSR says is that mental practice alone or in combination with constraint-induced movement therapy, two great tastes that taste great together, may be beneficial for upper limb rehabilitation following stroke.
0: So we have to add the third flavor in there because it's really good with mirror therapy too, graded motor imagery along with mirror therapy, is Are you
1: trying to get caramel in? You got <am>. peanut butter. bringing
0: in the caramel.
1: You got chocolate, two great mm-hmm. tastes, and you want to bring in the caramel? You know what? Yeah. That's starting to, I'm getting hungry now.
0: So, it's pretty good. So, I made some recordings for my friend, Anne, the one that, you know, she had the stroke and she used mirror therapy and she edited videos for me and all kinds of good stuff. I, made her some videos for some mental practice stuff. And she always said, you know, they're very soothing. And I do feel a little sleepy after I listen to those.
1: Well, Deb, you have that voice. I
0: I thought I did something wrong.
1: No. So here's what I would like to point out though. If you go to my blog, the Stronger After Stroke blog, and you look in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a link for free mental practice recordings for both the upper and lower extremity. It's like eight or nine for the upper. It's probably six or seven for the lower. In the lower extremity, it's things like going upstairs, walking faster, taking longer steps. In the upper mm. extremities, it's things like drinking out of a cup, upper body dressing, feeding.
0: I'm so not have, seeing this here.
1: So you got the Stronger After Stroke blog?
0: Yeah. Oh, here it is. You I see our it.
1: podcast, the advertisement? for
0: I you do. I- yeah. Oh, I was going to say.
1: It's right below that. I'm sorry. Should I, I do, put it I above see. it? It's right below. No. Upper right-hand absolutely corner. Absolutely not. Yeah. If you're not blind like Deb, you'll find it no problem. That was mean. No, being that mean. was mean. That was mean. You're not blind. No. I'm probably more blind than you are.
0: Well, maybe I got a little distracted with the podcast link on there. I know. It's up there.
1: Mm-hmm. there it is in all its glory. I got
0: it on my website, too.
1: Oh, okay. Good. Good. Yeah. Yeah, we gotta get the word out there.
0: I'm pretty sure that people, more people, go to yours than mine.
1: Hey, we went to more than 4k downloads. I know, I course, saw that. We still don't know what that means, but uh, we're happy to have whatever it means.
0: I think, um, I think it means people are listening to it.
1: <laughs> I think that's what it means. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. you know, you get some of these websites from you know a PT or something on YouTube, and you look at them, and they got 40. 5,000 people how? that hit on it. And it's, it's like, wait a second, I'll tell you how. They're only 10 minutes long. I mean, we're asking mm-hmm. for an hour-long commitment out of people. No, you don't you
0: have know, to I, I like, when I like something, I want more of it. And so I'm not that person that likes a 10-minute long something. I want, I want more. So hopefully, it must be people like us that are listening to this.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is, I think video is a lot of these things that therapists are doing online. It's for people that have had a brain injury. Mm -hmm. And I've done talks to people with brain injury, and they're often very bright, and they know what's going on. They got no problem. um, But their attention span is a little bit shorter. Mm -hmm. And so maybe this is better for clinicians. Although I do know that there are survivors of brain injury that are listening to us as well. Hey, survivors, That's awesome. Glad to have you. Please email us and tell us what you want to hear about. Yeah. All right. So mental practice appears to work. We have free mental practice recordings if you want them. Stronger After Stroke blog. Go to the upper right-hand corner.
0: So I took a, a course, a continuing education course. It was a mirror therapy one, but they were talking about the mental practice piece. And it's another opportunity to build that with the patient and make it something that they value, something that they used to do. It's really good for pet owners, you know. have a whole recording describing holding their pet, petting their pet, walking their pet, feeding their pet. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah.
1: So uh, let me ask you this. How would you uh, combine something like mirror therapy with mental practice?
0: Um, you do the mental practice before doing the mirror therapy.
1: <sighs> I mm-hmm. see. I like that hesitation mm-hmm. like uh okay, <laughs> let me go back class because yeah, a few of you know. are not getting it. <laughs> <laughs> no, did I sound like that? Hey man, I called you blind. You can call me stupid. It's okay.
0: I didn't This is the thing. I I just was thinking. This is just this is just what it's like when I'm thinking and apparently some people take it to mean that I think they're stupid. That is not the case. Um it's just
1: uh Pete we would do that before we do the mirror therapy okay can you let me
0: not add, <laughs> add something else i think i think you can do mental practice throughout the day I, I think the more you do it the better wait are you saying that i could just have a
1: pristine flashback of a beautiful movement from my past and have that pristine flashback be important to my brain? Is that what you're suggesting? Why, yes, Pete, I am. Mm-hmm. You mean it doesn't have to be this whole thing where you have recordings and you're sitting down and you've got to be in a quiet room.
0: You just have it standing in line at the post office. Yeah, you can do it then too. But I think there's value in the recordings. It gets into your subconscious mind that way.
1: With recordings, you think? Mm-hmm. See, we didn't yeah. measure that.
0: Well, I wonder if, You know, any of the subconscious has been brought into research in terms of stroke recovery.
1: That's interesting because hypnosis has been tried. Has it? The last time I looked, there was no efficacy. It would be great. Imagine if you got somebody hypnotized and you Mm -hmm. said, it's 20 years ago and you walk perfectly. Now get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks because he's hypnotized and yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, I think if you listen to those recordings every night before you go to bed or every morning when you wake up, that it it can be a little bit of self-hypnosis, and it's not a bad thing.
1: Yeah, a lot of mental practice is about accessing the motor schema. And I always suggest to people especially therapists, ask Mr. Smith, hey, in your dreams, are you hemipyretic? Are you walking weird because you've had a brain injury? And he'll say, no, Uh, you know, I'm climbing trees, I'm swimming, I'm doing everything I used to do. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's something about that. Maybe falling to sleep to the tapes, maybe a dreamlike state, maybe dreaming would be the perfect way to do this. We need to call Elon Musk with this brain Mm -hmm. interface. (laughs) Well, it looks like the stuff that works is going to take so long. We're going to need to make two episodes out of it. But that's fair game. You know why? Because we had two episodes on what doesn't work. And now we will give, you know, equal time to what does work. So let's get back. We'll talk for another hour on what does work.
0: Sounds good to me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.